It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. How can you achieve and maintain business growth? Harvard Business School Executive Education is now accepting applications for a new program, Driving Profitable Growth. Taking place in Boston from October 25th through the 28th, this program focuses on business expansion and organizational growth strategies that can lead your company into the future. Learn more about this three-day program for senior leaders by visiting hbs.me growth. That's hbs.me growth. Hello and welcome to the Rain and Jays podcast number 12 on the season. I am John Corrales, joined by Jay King. After what should have been a seven-game winning streak, but it turns out to have been a two-game losing streak to horrible, horrible, disgusting, embarrassing losses to the Lakers and the Nets, which is like losing twice, Jay King, when you lose to the Nets. Uh, that was as bad an effort as I've seen all season, and I don't understand why. Yeah, we were really close to having like an all-optimistic six-game winning streak reigning Jays. Instead, the sky is falling. The Celtics have lost to the Lakers. They've lost to the Nets, and they're, Brad Stevens is blaming himself. Players are blaming themselves. Everybody wants a piece of the blame. Nobody knows exactly what's going on. And what it is really is their offense isn't good enough for their defense to slip even a little. And they slipped up. They can slip up against anyone. These are the Celtics. They're the Celtics. You know, they, They're not good enough where they can take games off. And so when they do, they can lose to the Lakers. They can lose to the Nets. They could lose to nib high football, I think. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you talked about the some of the quotes after the game. You can see Isaiah Thomas saying flat out, "We're definitely not one of the best teams in the NBA." So I don't get how we could possibly think it's okay to play down to anybody when we don't play hard and we're not the aggressive team. We're one of the worst teams in the NBA. It's things that we've been saying all along. The Celtics, when they play together, aggressive, swarming defense and force those turnovers and get out and run and pick up the pace, they can be really, really good. But they seem to be falling in love with uh, the big three-pointers, hitting the home runs, and I don't know know why these guys, after the Lakers' loss, why do these guys come out with the exact same lack of intensity when it was just shown to you that you can't do that. You can't come out and play like that and expect to succeed. Yet they come out the very next game, the very next game, and pull the same stuff. And Brad Stevens says it's his fault. And when it happens like that in a back-to-back game, you have to wonder how much of it is the coach's fault. Is when he talks about guys being passive and needing to hold guys accountable, does Brad Stevens need to adjust his style at all to be a little tougher on some guys and start changing some of the rotations and making sure that the guys that are playing with the high energy are out there more often? I think some of the rotations do need to change. 
I think we've been saying it all along. They should go small more often. I think Stevens wants to go small more often. I think what, what has kept him from doing that is Marcus Smart. It still isn't all the way back. Marcus Smart played 16 minutes in the second half against Brooklyn. Looks like he's finally back to playing full minutes. He, he had a great second half. He was one of the few guys who really brought it. I thought he destroyed Shane Larkin inside and just really left his Im- impact when they made that, that big run to come back. They need more Marcus Smart. They need more small ball. At, the starting lineup has had some weird slow starts lately in both halves. And both against Los Angeles and against Brooklyn, and that's hurt. I don't know if Stevens should switch that up. The starting lineup has been good most of the time. Hasn't been good lately. I, I, I do think small ball, more small ball is coming soon. We saw it down the stretch against Brooklyn. They went small a lot. They even had Jay Crowder guarding Brooke Lopez, which was interesting. Mm-hmm. Let, let's just put it that way. And <laughs> I, I thought th- that stuff – it can work. It worked last year. It's it's a better option than throwing out, you know, yesterday they, they got down, I think it was nine, and then they threw out the David Lee, Kelly Olynyk front court duo, which has been like their worst front court duo that they've had. I thought that was a weird coaching decision. But for the most part, I think it's not on Stevens. It's the players. What You know, five days ago, they were on a four-game winning streak. Stevens hasn't changed since then. It's just the players laid two duds against Los Angeles and Brooklyn. And in the with the crowded East, that can't happen. You can't have days like that. These are games that can hurt you down the road because two through twelve, even the East is it's all packed together. And this isn't last season when it's easy to get into the Eastern Conference playoffs and easy to get. If you're good, a decent seed. This is the East is the better conference now, and so the Celtics need to pull their heads out of their rears <laughs> against Brooklyn when when they meet again Monday. So Gary Washburn had an interesting little thing in the Globe today, where he says, "I'll read directly from his piece: Players are looking over their shoulder while playing, waiting for the moment that their replacement is summoned, and in their short minutes." They're trying to make the big play that will keep them on the court. Stevens needs to stress that the big play won't keep them on the court. The right one will. So, there's one play that stands out that kind of seems to highlight what Gary Washburn is saying. Uh, Tyler Zeller, who we've been saying should play more, uh, who had an opportunity to play in the first half. He didn't play in the second half, did he? he uh, no. No. So... He, he came in in the first half against Brooklyn, and as Brad Stevens tried to match up some of the size and go big with a traditional center, and there was a play where Jarebko was in the corner, in the left corner, wide open, wide open. Every, wide open. Every Nets defender wasn't just – the closest one to, to, to Jarebko, I think, might have been somebody standing in the middle of the lane. That's how far away the defender was. And Zeller took a dribble and took took a little kind of floater from from a few feet away. Now that's not a bad shot for for Zeller to take, but he was kind of contested. Uh, and again, that was you can't possibly be more wide open in an NBA game. 
unless everybody just runs off the floor. So that seems to be a, a type of play where here's Zeller. He doesn't get a lot of minutes. He's got the ball in a place where he can score, and he decides to try to score rather than being aware of the situation and, and firing a pass out to Jarebko and giving, giving him a shot at, at a corner three. So are we in a situation now, this is where the depth might be causing a problem for the Celtics. Are we in a situation where there are so many guys that they're, they're not playing the way they should be playing because they're just desperately trying to get some of these minutes? I don't think so. I mean, if you ask me, this team has succeeded to the extent it has this season because it's unselfish, because it has a number two defense. And those that's symbols of hard work. You don't get the number two defense if you're slacking off. That Zeller play, yeah, he absolutely should have found Jarebko in the corner. Was that because he's looking to make the big play? I don't know. Steve, the players know Stevens wants the right play all the time. Stevens doesn't want the flashy play. He stresses all the time, hit singles, not home runs. Hit singles, not home runs. Is that on the rotation? I don't think you can blame the rotation, but maybe it has something to do with it. I don't know. The rotation is crazy, though. I mean, they went 11 deep in the first quarter against Brooklyn. Or at least in the first half, when yeah. when David Lee got in there, and that's just a lot of players. That's and a lot of guys. You, now that Marcus Smart is back, they're they've still snuck some minutes for James Young here and there. R.J. Hunter, he wasn't in there. You know, Jordan Mickey, they want to see what he does, but he hasn't gotten a chance all season. There's just so many guys, and I I do think that rotation maybe it's not impacting the players. But it's a challenge every night because Stevens wants to go small. He has five legitimate NBA big men on his roster. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to go small and sit two of those guys who are proud guys all the time. And knowing that they're going to be at least a little disgruntled, even if you're the best teammate in the world, it sucks to go out there, know you're a good player, and still have to sit while your team plays. Zeller's been doing it all year. Lee, I thought Lee was going to do it in the first half last night, and then they he got in with like three minutes, four minutes left. So it's it's tough. Stevens has a tough job, and it's only going to get tougher now that Smart's back and able to play full minutes. That's um, that's been the the biggest puzzle all year has been trying to figure out how to make those lineups work because their best lineups are small and they have a million bigs. Well. I think something's going to have to happen. And, and one of our Twitter questions from uh, at Big Huff Daddy says, do you think asks, do you think Stevens will commit to going small more after the slow start and then come back against Brooklyn? A- at some point here, he's got to make the call. And he's got to say, this is our most successful lineup. This is when we play our best. We have to keep doing this. And certain guys are just going to have to accept it. And that's it. Um, now, one guy... Jared Sullinger, I, I want to talk about him because I, he, I think he looked pretty bad yesterday. Uh, and his December was really, really bad. His true shooting percentage in December was 39.2%. That's, 
That's that, that's disgusting for a guard, guys. That like for people who don't know what true shooting percentage is, that is gross, gross, gross. Even for a guard, for a big man, that's unheard of. That's insane. And and his usage rate, he's at twenty point three. So they're using him a lot. He's involved in a lot, and he's shooting about as poorly as you could shoot, and especially from three, which I mean he's. He's right around his career average, which is about 28%. I mean, unless Evan Turner, if Evan Turner didn't exist, we'd be talking about Jared Sollinger being the worst three-point shooter on the team. Uh, and his, look, and his November wasn't that great either. His true shooting percentage in November was about 49 and a half. So I mean, for, for a guy like Sollinger, that needs to be up like at least – five to ten percent higher than that so sully came out of nowhere we had the preseason where he was on the outside looking in and then he comes in and does really well for a while and he still does good things i'm not saying he sucks but how can we have a guy that is using up 20 percent of our possessions and in shooting that poorly how can we have him on the floor when you have guys like Alinek who benefit from more playing time and you have other guys, you want to go small, you want to throw other guys in there like Crowder or Jarebko, at what point do we sit there and take a good hard look at Jared Sullinger and say the, the magic is gone, whatever he had at the beginning of the season is gone, we have to go in a different direction? Well, he, he does a lot of things to help even when he's not making shots. He's the best rebounder on the team. He's become a good defender positionally. He He's a good passer. He's, as much as we want to say, like, he's a chucker, he he's normally doesn't take a ton of shots. He, he needs to shoot better. I, I mean, he shooting efficiency has always been an issue for him. The last two years, he's had 49.7 true shooting in 2013, 2014, and 50.3% true shooting last season. That's not good enough for a big man. And he doesn't get to the line. For a guy who is as strong as Jared Sullinger and who should spend as much time near the paint as Jared Sullinger should, he should be getting to the line. This team needs easy points, easy buckets. They don't get to the free throw line enough. Their offense needs someone besides Isaiah Thomas, besides Jay Crowder, who's gotten to the free throw line a little bit this year. They need somebody else to get to the line. And, and Sullinger, he's just not athletic enough. And this is why when, when, you, when you go back to this summer, when he, he talked to all, all about getting into shape, this is why you wanted him to come back in, in better shape. So that instead of getting blocked by Brooke Lopez near the rim and needing to go up with a second shot attempt, he can get a shot off against Brooke Lopez, freaking Brooke Lopez, you know? So, <laughs> so that, that scoring efficiency has been an issue for a long time for Sullinger. He goes through deep slumps. Like every year he's had like month, two month long slumps that scoring wise. And right now he's just in the midst of one. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it'll take to snap him out of it. 
he he needs to to start scoring more efficiently because he does so many things to help them, and that's why you need him on the court. But but man, it, it's tough, tough, tough to have a good offense when a guy who uses up one fifth of your possessions is scoring like Austin Rivers as a rookie. <laughs> no, it's true. It's true. Um, I hate laughing when you use such a horrible example, but that's true. And you're not wrong. He does do all of those other things. He's still averaging just about 10 rebounds a game. That's, that's big. That's important. When you're playing defense, you need a guy to clear the rebound and start you up, up on, uh, on the break. At some point, the bad outweighs the good. And just wondering where that line is with him or if he just needs to shoot less. Or you know, are, are we looking at a point where his conditioning continues to be a problem? Is that is that also a thing? So I like Sullinger. I want him to do well. But right now, like yesterday, he just looked bad. And I don't know if it was just trying to to guard Lopez and just getting worn down but he just didn't look good and then he came out and it barely played in the fourth quarter I don't remember seeing him in the fourth quarter much he um that that's when the Celtics made their comeback and this is the other thing about the Celtics now transitioning to let's look at that fourth quarter comeback when they were attacking like you said getting to the line they were they drew a bunch of fouls early and they were really close to getting the Nets into the in, into the penalty with more than half of the quarter left to play. And then they started getting three happy again. They took 32 three-pointers yesterday, made seven. I will say this, though. In the fourth quarter, they were going small. And those small lineups always lead to more three-pointers. And some of those were wide open. Like Crowder had one wide open. Olenek had one wide open. And that's fine. And, and then Jarebko's at the end could not have been a better look. Yeah. No, that's that's fine. But um, I think maybe it says a lot about this team's mentality when they were down five and Jay Crowder got the ball with, what was it, uh, 15, 16, 17 seconds left. There was nobody between him and the basket. You're down five, and you have an opportunity to score two really quick points. And he went and looked, ran out to the three-point line. So I don't know if that speaks to just a brain fart on his on his part there or just they're so programmed to, to shoot the three when they have it. But that's the type of decision that I, I think kind of really highlights where they are. That was – Go ahead. I, I think that might have been – I'm going to completely disagree with you here. I think that might have been a good decision. You know, game clock's winding down. In the NBA, if you foul a guy, he's almost always going to hit at least one of the free throws, so you're going to be down four. How much does a two help you in that situation? You get down, down to three, he pushes it up to – they push it up to either four or five right away, and it's still a two-possession game. If you get a three, at least you have a chance of him hitting one out of two and you having a chance to tie it. So at that stage of the game, down five, 15 seconds left, whatever it was, you're, I mean, you need a prayer. And they ended up get, almost getting one. But 
to me, if you go for two there, that's not maximizing your chance to win. As, as weird as it looks to sprint to the three-point line when there's nobody in front of you, you need to cut it to two because otherwise it's still going to be a two-possession game and you're still going to need to do a whole lot of work. So I didn't mind that, that shot at all. I, they just, they can't hit shots. It's, I don't think it's necessarily the shots they're getting. They just need to hit some. It's like their shooting has been woeful, absolutely woeful sometimes. And there are games when, when they all go down and everything looks good. And and that's when they blow teams out. When it's, when those shots aren't falling there, it's the games are just a grind. They they can play some of the most grinding games, and it's they they can play some ugly basketball when those shots aren't falling. And I do think that some of it is is that they weren't they didn't have enough energy offensively. Some of those looks weren't in rhythm like they could have been if if they had executed better, if they had moved the ball better. But. They they just need to hit shots. It, it's it's been a problem all year. It's been a problem dating back to last year when they were twenty seventh in three point percentage. And yeah, well, they're twenty fifth now. Yeah, and they're, and they're seventh in the NBA in three point attempts. So they're in the top third of the league taking them, and they are uh, fifth from the bottom in making them. So that's a problem. That's look. This isn't a new phenomenon. And, you know, at some point, this has to, they have to kind of work on something else. They have to do something different. They can't keep doing the same thing and then hope the shots fall. At what point do we have to sit there and say, these guys just maybe aren't good enough to hit the shots? That's, Jared Sullinger should not be taking a three. Ever again. Evan Turner should not be taking a three ever again. I don't care how open he is. If they sit there and dare him to take the shot, don't take it. Dribble, get closer to the rim, do something, force force something else up. I would rather see Evan Turner drive and take a two than take a three because I know what the I know how the NBA conventional wisdom is, but when you're a sixteen percent three point shooter, there's no way you should be attempting a three in a game. When you're a twenty eight percent three point shooter, there's no way, no matter how open they leave you, there's no way you should be taking that shot. Got to do something else. Unless it's five seconds left on the shot clock and that you have to do it, there's there's really no excuse for taking that shot. And some of those shots are wide open. Some guys who can make those shots, Jarebko missing wide open threes, we'll have, to, we'll have to live with that because that's a shot that he can make. But some of these guys, just, I think they... I think they just default. They 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 know that they have the three point, the the green light, and they take too too much advantage of that. There's still a need to get to the rim. There's still a need to draw the fouls. So I just would like to see them be a little more judicious. Instead of taking 32 threes, they can take their 26 or 27 threes, and and those five possessions could be better spent doing something else. Yep, yep, we agree. They okay. they they need. They need to get to the paint more often. They, I think that's what Stevens is talking about when he says they're passive. And also, they're not forcing nearly as many turnovers as they did earlier in the season. I don't know exactly what it is. For a while, they were like one of the top 
turnover forcing teams of the past 20 years. Now they're number three in opposing turnover rate in the NBA this season. So that has come kind of crashing down. Obviously, a lot of some of that had to do with Marcus Smart being out, but and some of it I'm sure is other teams game planning, knowing that the Celtics can turn you over, and, and if they don't get easy buckets, they're not nearly the same offensively. That's been really hurtful. I, I think that's been overlooked as as people try to try to make sense of what's going on with them and why their offense is still number 20, is that they're not getting those easy points that they used to early in the season. They're not getting nearly as many of those per game. Other teams are handling their their pressure much, much better. And they need to be more solid, I think, with their offense. And they need part of that is getting to the paint, getting easy buckets, getting the, the ball moving, Isaiah Thomas and Evan Turner really are the only ones who can consistently get into the paint. And I think going small more will help facilitate some of that easy bucket stuff. But they need they need more layups, they need more free throws. And they need to stop having poor shooters shoot threes, such as Evan Turner, and Jared Sollinger. Sollinger's shooting two per game. I'm not sure exactly how many Turner's shooting, but that's too much when, when, when you're not a good shooter. It's true. No, it's true. I mean, those guys those guys alone, I saw Turner take two of them. I, I remember two of them yesterday. Uh, so, look, you're, you're talking about a, a game that went down to one possession, a last-second shot to tie the game. You have four possessions, and this is nitpicky, I know. But when you go back and you look at four possessions that were essentially wasted by guys who are shooting less than 30% from three, that's, those are things that need to – it's an adjustment that needs to be made. So the, the next question is how, how long before things start to change? Are, are we looking at the next game, tomorrow night's game, against – Brooklyn as a potential change? Are we going to see a starting lineup shift? Are we going to look at uh, maybe starting small and just trying that and going with that? I doubt they'll start small just because they have so many, as I said, like they just have so many bigs that if you start small and also their depth isn't on the backcourt. So if they start small, they commit to, what is it, six minutes per half with four of your perimeter players, four of your, what, five or six guys that you use on the perimeter, starting them six minutes in each half, that can spread some of those guys thin. That can take away your flexibility later because you, you've given them so many minutes. I don't think they'll start small. I, I do think Stevens has wanted to change things up for a while. I think when David Lee got hurt, that kind of kept him from doing that. When Marcus Smart came back, that changed the plans again. So I wouldn't be surprised to see changes somewhere. I don't think I, – I mean, the starting lineup is still a plus four net rating for the season over 284 minutes. That's pretty good, uh, especially playing against opposing team starters. That That's good. And last year, they, they, their starting lineup was atrocious, just giving away points every night. 
as as much as this the Celtics have struggled, it, it's not it hasn't been the starters. They need to find somehow a working bench, and I, I think they need more minutes for the Sullinger Olynyk combo because that boosts the offense. Their offense looks so much better with those two skilled guys on the court. I think they need more small ball lineups. Those small ball lineups have been good dating back to last season when they got Isaiah Thomas, when they freed Jay Crowder and Jonas Derebko. They need more of that. And it's it's weird because last year what made them good was those small lineups. And then they went out and got Amir Johnson. They went out and got David Lee. They still had, uh, you know, Sullinger came back from injury. And all of a sudden, you know, what made you good last year is not how your roster is built together this year. So Stevens has to make a real decision there. And what's interesting is, you know how how he blamed himself and said all this stuff about how he's not getting the most out of team? He said that last year in January. And it was like a week later, no joke, like a week later, Ainge had traded Jeff Green. Brandon Wright was out the door. Jameer Nelson gone, and interesting. At, at that point, it was like they needed to cut down the rotation. They, they had too many guys, and it was too tough to create lineups that made sense. Does Ainge do that this year? I don't know. It, it's tougher this year because Brandon Wright. Like, who cares if you lose him? Jameer Nelson. Who cares? This year, like you have all those young guys and the the only one who you'd be like kind of who cares I think is David Lee and you think (laughs) well I I mean you could you could maybe have someone else I I don't know I I wouldn't put anyone else in that but David Lee's tough to trade because he has a 15 million dollar contract and you want that around in case you can go after that star player so that you don't have to aggregate salaries or it's easier to aggregate salaries so what do you do 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 you just change the lineups and hope guys are okay with it i don't know maybe stevens has to be more set and he knows small lineup he's said for so long that small lineups are better he's started to play sullinger and olenic together more often lately that that's a good duo i'm telling you that duo they look so much better when that duo is on the court so, I, I, I'm interested to see what he does. And they're, they're finally healthy. Like, Smart is back. Everybody's healthy. Well, with the exception, Bradley? With the exception of RJ Hunter. Yeah, and, and Avery Bradley. Although, that, I don't think it's too serious. Just a, just a bruise. So, they, they, they might be finally healthy if Avery Bradley is able to play Monday. And we might finally see what, what Stevens is going to do with the, his team at a, at a Full health. Yeah, that's going to be interesting. Um, I, I still, I, I think the way he's been talking, I think uh, Marcus Smart might be still a few games from from being uh, at full strength. But he played a lot down the stretch. He was a key. He was a, he was the key to the comeback. Uh, and so uh, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, let's get into some Twitter questions uh, before we hit the big finale. Uh, do Justin asks, do you think we have David Lee because he's a big contract that can be used in a blockbuster trade? He's useless on the court. Just kind of goes to what you were just saying. 
I think that's pretty much the only reason you keep him around at this point. And you, they, they have to give him minutes so he doesn't complain. And you have to give him minutes, I think, to have some value to, to potentially trading him. But I, I, I would really like to see him just go away. This my weekly, will David Lee please go away rant. So we'll just move on from there. <laughs> otherwise, <laughs> otherwise. I, 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 to, to, to answer that question, I don't think he was brought in simply as a contract. Obviously, the contract makes sense if you're going to have a big trade. But he was going to be a, he was a starter opening night. Like they, they thought he was going to help. They, they thought David Lee was going to come in and give them a boost. They saw him in the playoffs last season. He had those really, I thought, series-turning moments against Cleveland. He had some series-turning moments against Memphis. He wasn't in great shape when he got to Boston, and he hasn't had a great season so far. Does that mean he will be bad the rest of the season? No. Does that mean... But so far, he has not helped, and it's been one of their their issues with their rotation is that he hasn't helped, and his minutes have kept them from going small with Jonas Terebko and Jay Crowder more often. Well, that's I think they brought him in there first to get out of the Wallace contract a year sooner and still have that option of a guy. Now they had an expiring contract. I think his contract has a huge, huge reason why he was here. Uh, because now they have an expiring deal to potentially match up in a, in a blockbuster trade. And yeah, the, the production was a bonus. I think, I think he was a contract first and a player second. That's just my, that's my guess. It's my thinking. Um, and yeah, and now he's not even really a player. So, Josh Collingsworth <laughs> asks, what's the one thing that could bring consistency to this team? Well, not playing David Lee is one thing, um, but being healthy, that uh, honestly, that, that has been a big problem. And, and maybe it's not much of a surprise that some of the issues have come when Marcus Smart's coming back and you're now trying to reshape the rotations. So I'm, that's an element that we haven't really talked about. And obviously when you bring a guy back, that's, that's a good thing. But that's, that's one guy that is in the mix that suddenly, that, that wasn't in the mix before. So I think health is, is the, the first thing that brings consistency to this team. Cause once everybody's healthy, then Brad Stevens can say definitively, this is how many minutes I'm playing this guy. And moving forward, we can start to say, Okay, these guys need to be phased out. This guy needs to come in, um, and and just move forward that way. Yeah, the, to me, consistency. Their defense, Stephen says this time and time again. Their defense has almost always been good, even against Brooklyn. The Nets shot thirty-seven point three percent over the final three quarters. The Nets were two for fifteen from the three-point line over the final three quarters. And still, they held off the Celtics. Like, if you're holding a team to 37% shooting over the final three quarters and you're only down two to begin with, you should be running away with that game. But the Celtics' offense 
goes through long droughts. We've seen it all year. We've seen it last year. They just don't have enough to score all the time when Isaiah Thomas is on the bench. And do they have the talent to figure that out? I think they, they'll, they won't be a powerful offense. They won't be a powerhouse. They can be better. And their offense needs to be better. Their offense needs to be more consistent. And I, I do think that some of the lulls are because, as, as we talked about earlier, they don't get those easy points. They need to get easier points, whether it's by forcing more turnovers, getting fast break layups, whether it's by getting to the free throw line somehow, some way. They need to, to make it so that when they do have those three-point shooting droughts, which are going to happen because they are not an elite shooting team or even close to it, they need to have their offense survive. And that's how you turn those three-point losses to Brooklyn into five- or six-point wins. That's how you turn you know, the, the close loss to Los Angeles into a win. And the, the defense, I, I did think, slipped against Los Angeles. That was no doubt there. They were getting shredded by Lou Williams, by D'Angelo Russell, by Jordan Clarkson, by any Laker with a pulse with the exception of Kobe Bryant until that dagger three, which one last moment for Kobe. Yeah. But but the defense has been there from the start of the season. It's the offense that comes and goes. And that's just how it is with these Celtics, and they need to change that. They need to at least at least push their offense to average. They're number 20 right now. Push it to 15 or 14, and all of a sudden you've got a more consistent team, I think. Well, look, I think they showed two flashes last night that highlight how the Celtics should should get their offense. There was a stretch in the first quarter, and there was that obviously that stretch uh, at the end of the fourth quarter. And how did it happen? It was steals and pushing – and, and forcing the issue, and that's when the Celtics were their best earlier in the season, and we were looking at a top three defense, and that offense was still wasn't the greatest, but their their offensive rating was still in the top half of the league. That was the Celtics forcing turnovers, getting out on the break, uh, the you know the Isaiah Thomas pull up transition three, which he loves to do. Those types of plays are, are what really got the Celtics' offense going. They're not a good half-court offense. They're just they're a terrible half-court offense. If you can't get out and run, chances are, unless Isaiah Thomas is creating something, they can't create anything besides a, a mid-range jumper, which is what every defense is geared to give you, and they will live with that. And you see the result. If, if you're happy taking mid-range jumpers all the time, then you end up having this offense. This is what you become. So I don't want to belabor the point. It's defense first. The Celtics play defense first. Force turnovers, get out, score. Those are your easy points. Those are your layups. Those are your fouls. Those are your transition threes. And then if you even your mediocre offense is basically supplementing that and you can get up over 100 points a game. It's, I think it's that simple for, for the Celtics. They can't score any other way. Um, Jack asks, uh, has Avery Bradley just hit a slump in the past few weeks, or is it something more concerning? We miss his three ball. 
Um, I, Avery Bradley is, is I, I consistently Avery Bradley, which is his first quarters are amazing, his second quarters are terrible, and then he's okay the rest of the way. And occasionally he'll catch fire when you need him to down the stretch, but that's I think that's the pretty Avery Bradley formula. He'll he'll score 15 points in the first quarter and then nothing and then whatever. We'll see what we get in the in in the second half. So I wouldn't call that a slump. I just call that Avery Bradley just being Avery Bradley. It's better. He's he's more of a two way player this year than he was last year. But I don't. I, his offense has gotten better, and I hope that it will continue to get better. But that's basically what he is. Yeah, I mean he's a shooter. Can be a streaky shooter. And I'm looking at his stats now. In, in December, he shot 35.3% from the three-point arc. In November, he was at 42.2. Is he as good as November? I don't think so. Will he be better than December? I do think so. He's somewhere in the middle. He, he'll, he'll settle in. He, he's, he's definitely gotten better. Their problem isn't Avery Bradley. Their their problem is sometimes their offense stagnates. And I, I think sometimes he gets lost when their offense stagnates. And it, it's it's been ugly sometimes. They're, they're, oh man. They've their <laughs> off their offense can be ugly. It, it can be tough to watch at times. <laughs> it, it really can I feel like you're going through some sort of PTSD right now. Just thinking back to the offense, because you start to talk, and then it's like you get this flashback. <laughs> horrible, mid-range, bad pick-and-pop type of thing, and you're just like, you're making a point, and then that thing sticks in your head, and you're like, make it stop. Make it stop. There was one possession against the Nets where, oh, oh, I almost puked. It was like, it was like Kelly Olynyk was dribbling and dribbling and he kind of almost lost balance almost lost the ball and then like a few seconds left in the shot clock he finds Marcus Smart who doesn't know what to do with it and Smart ended up getting fouled and going to the line but but whoa I mean that third <laughs> quarter against the Nets they haven't I'm not sure they've played worse this season that was like just a disaster absolute bad. disaster there was one, that one play where Marcus Smart airballed one from the corner, and then Jarebko got the rebound. He was wide open and missed a layup. He missed that layup so badly. He put it he, – he shot it like a foot long. Yeah. That was that, bad. That, was that's, bad. that third quarter was like – like you, you really could like, like just, just vomit watching that. It was – and then when, when Bogdanovich isolated on Lee and got to the hoop, and it was like, really, David? And then, I mean, there were just so many sequences. And it was weird because they had that little dust-up. And yeah. Jared Jack was in Jared Sullinger's face. And I, I hope Jared Jack is okay. That that knee injury looked awful. Yeah. But Jared Jack is in Jared Sullinger's face. He had taken offense to Sullinger's foul on Brooke Lopez. And then there was, there was a little dust-up. Emotions were high. Let's go. Celtics chance started coming down. There was finally energy in the arena. The Celtics didn't have it. They, they, they gave up a 9-0 run immediately after that. And it's like, why doesn't that wake you up? Why, if you're going to take the Nets lightly, which you shouldn't to begin with, but if you're going to, and then their point guard gets in your big man's face, 
don't you just kind of turn it on? Yeah. You think and and instead and instead it was like that offense they haven't played worse offense I don't think this whole season. Brooklyn shot like like thirty something percent in that third quarter and outscored Boston by nine points. It was just a gross, gross quarter. That's horrible. <laughs> that is really, really horrible. Uh, a couple more things here before we get to our big finish. Um, well, we've already talked about this, but I'll just mention that Boston Ball asks, can we start an official petition to stop Evan Turner from taking another three while wearing Celtics green, please? Yeah, I'm in. Let's sign that. Let's put it on, like, uh, whitehouse.gov or something. I'm sure. Well, President Obama's a big basketball fan. He'll understand. Uh, yeah, that that should never happen again. And uh, he also asks, uh, he said, you know, in the last podcast, wonder if your opinions have changed. Is it just me or is it James Young a liability on defense? You know, I think I think James Young has improved a lot on defense. He's not a good defender yet, but he's figuring it out. I'm not, I'm not too worried. Why yeah, I've, I've actually been been pretty optimistic about his progress. I mean, from where he was in summer league until now, night and day, he's he's a lot better. You can start to see the progress, which really for a while you didn't see. So, it. I'm okay with what James Young has done this year and, and, and the steps he's made. And the fact that they don't fall apart with him on the court anymore. Like, he was he was on the court for that big run they had against the Nets. And he wasn't screwing up. And, yeah, yeah. I, I'm with I'm with you. Like he's getting better. He's still not good defender, still not right. a, a plus player. But, you know, he, I mean, he's taking steps. And he's still the youngest guy on the team. So Yeah, I mean, it's it's – Right now, in a snapshot, are you, is he a liability on defense? I guess he's, he's, he's probably still your worst defender on the floor individually. Uh, if, if, if he switches out on a good player, you're worried about what's going to happen. But I think within the system, he's taking, he's taking steps. So in the big picture view, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to really get on James Young for his defense. It's actually, he's working and you can see some of that paying off. Uh, okay. Before we go, we have to mention, Two big goodbyes that rolled through the garden since our last show. We took we took the Christmas week off, so we had. Let's go back. Well, actually, no. I want to I want to finish on that. Let's go first to the most recent one, the Kobe goodbye, which I thought was nice. Um, they he got the, the a good amount of applause at the beginning and then booed immediately on each possession, which is exactly what I wanted. And then I think at the end, there were a lot of Lakers fans in the building, and this was, uh, you know, a, a bad loss for the Celtics. And I think the Lakers fans in the building started up the Kobe chants, and then everybody on the radio lost their minds because you know, how could the fans be chanting for Kobe and blah blah blah? I think there was a lot of Lakers fans in there that were were giving him some, and maybe some Celtics fans were just hey. seeing him off. It it was more than just a Lakers fan. There were people in Paul Pierce jerseys chanting for it. It was it was a weird scene. It was, I I mean he deserves all the respect. He deserves, and I I, I think I read somewhere that when Kareem played his last game in the Garden, he got a minute plus standing ovation. So this this isn't a new thing with with Boston and respecting opposing rivals this is you you have to respect what Kobe did and 
he helped revive the Celtics Lakers rivalry. And he was a huge part of that, those two series in 2008, 2010. And he, for 20 years, you look at when he first played against the Boston Celtics, it was like they started Dana Barrows, they started Dino Raja, they had Marty Conlon and Brett Zabo on the team. Team. This that, guy has has been a great player forever. Amazing. Like for for not just one generation, like like so many generations. Yeah. It it's unbelievable. And to me, the the most interesting part of having Kobe come to Boston for his last trip is finding out how much the Celtics players, not the fans, the players, yeah, respect him and are like fanboys of him. Yeah, well, Jake Jay Crowder like like has loved him since he was a kid. Isaiah Thomas used to wear his jersey when he was younger. Evan Turner considered him number two to Michael Jordan on his list, and Evan Turner was a Chicago kid, so Michael Jordan was always going to be number one on his list. Like those guys, all have so much deep respect for Kobe Bryant, and they're like really still his fans like he's just he's been around for so long he's done so much that there's a huge generational gap even between him and the guys who are established in the NBA not even the younger guys the established ones yeah well this is and people who have listened to me on, on the various shows that we've done know that I'm a huge fan of the the human side of basketball the stuff that we don't really get into we always talk about the pick and rolls and the defense and this guy should do this and shouldn't do that. We dehumanize guys and turn them into just robots that should be doing X, Y, and Z. But I love this side that Isaiah Thomas, who is what, 27? He, that means that when Kobe was becoming Kobe, Isaiah Thomas was this 10, 11, 12 year old kid in the Seattle area, so West Coast, watching those games, becoming a player. Think about being a teenager, loving the game of basketball, mimicking the way kids mimic those guys. That's when Kobe was now in his prime. When Kobe was 24, 25, 26, when he was winning championships, guys like Isaiah Thomas, Jay Crowder, they were impressionable teenagers watching the games, Falling in love with NBA basketball, you know, got posters up on the walls, and now here they are playing in the in in the league, living a dream. But they always have that thing that that person that they admired. Kobe was a fictional character to them. He was a superhero, and now here he is on the floor. And on top of it, Isaiah Thomas gets in touch with the guy, and they sit down before the game. He just wants to say hi and be like, "Hey, Kobe, you know, I'm a big fan." And they sit down for like 20 minutes and have a big conversation about the game. And he's like, yeah, I can always help you out. I can help, you know, if you need to know how to defend somebody, give me a call. I'll help you out. That is an amazing moment because as much as these guys have these big egos and they are, you know, like Isaiah Thomas is sitting here saying, I, you know, I'm an all-star. He's the leader, you know, offensive leader of the Celtics. All of a sudden, he just reverts back to being this kid and Kobe is sitting there talking to him and giving him advice and offering advice 
and giving him a phone number and saying, call me whenever, that's an amazing moment, a human moment that these guys will just cherish. And, and I love that that stuff exists, that, that fraternity, that bond, you know, that aspect of living the dream. So I'm not a big fan of Kobe Bryant, but I respect the hell out of the guy. And that guy is, is such a competitor. And it's just, it was just cool to to have that moment, have that moment for the team. And, you know, when it comes to Boston fans chanting and doing that stuff, it just it shows a level of respect and knowledge for the game that doesn't exist. And it's not just black and white where I think giving the guy his due and putting aside the fact that you just had a, a horrible loss to the team that that that's a nice moment, and I can I can at least say that the, the Celtics fans can appreciate the history, are knowledgeable enough to appreciate the history, and, and and to witness and to appreciate what they're witnessing. Yeah, he deserved all the cheers. I think a lot of the cheers that people were upset about were from Lakers fans. There, there were a lot of Lakers fans who made the trip because because it's Kobe, and sure. it was his last trip to Boston. And this is a place, it means a lot to him, too, coming back to Boston. He, he said, he put it up there with Philadelphia, which is his hometown, uh, on the, the most emotional stops for him in this retirement tour. He, he knows how much Boston meant his career. He, he, he gave Boston credit. My, actually, this is funny. He gave Boston credit for changing his mentality. He said if, if he hadn't lost in 2008, he wouldn't have learned how to win 2009. 2010 and my my brother my brother is a Celtics fan and he's a freshman in college he texted me man f Kobe <laughs> he's he said it wasn't it wasn't what they taught him it was that KG got hurt if KG never got hurt they were winning in 2009 they were winning in 2010 and nobody would have stopped him and so I thought that was funny but but they really did mean a lot to to his career and they they taught I thought the Lakers had to be tougher. That that 2008 Celtics team was one of the toughest teams I've ever seen. Just mentally, physically, everything. And it was it was fun to to remember that series and and to see how much those games mean to these players. I, I think that's why the, the Thomas and Bryant talk was interesting. These things mean so much to these guys. And these are memories that they, they keep forever. And, and at, we as fans like to see that and because you want them to care that much that coming back to Boston means that much. And, and it's just really interesting. And then KG was obviously the other return. Yeah. And he didn't play. And I, at first I was put off by that. Like, how do you not play? It might be your last turn to Boston. How do you not play? And then I, I kind of, once the game had unfolded and everything had happened, maybe it was for the best. Would you have wanted him to play 10 minutes and be a shell of his former self and go out there and, and maybe get beaten back door for a layup or get one of his shots Blocked the the unblockable fadeaway. Blocked. Would you have wanted to see that, or or do you want him sitting there on the bench, 
receiving KG chants for the entire game from a crowd that loved him for six years, that still loves him, that will always love him. I, I thought it was it was neater to see that. And then, of course, Gino comes on in the last couple minutes, and he just loses it. Uh, Gino has always been like Kevin Garnett. I think Gino. I I think I'm I'm gonna go into like like chair psychiatrist here for a second. <laughs> to me, I, Gino. He always loved Gino more than any human loves anything. And I think it was because Gino to him represented that moment of the game where he's sitting on the bench. His team is blowing somebody out. He has been in an absolute crazed state since hours before the game like just focused maniacal screaming cussing just completely out of his mind for hours and then when Gino came on to me that was like the moment where he could just finally let it go let his guard down enjoy what he had done on the basketball court for the previous two hours and just have fun and, and it was like like he went from that maniacal man to like a little five-year-old kid in a moment whenever Gino came on the screen. And so to see him, even though the Timberwolves have lost, look up and just find that joy, channel that joy that he had so many times in blowout wins. And the crowd is chanting for him. I, I, it looked like he was tearing up a little bit. That was That was a powerful moment. I don't know if he'll ever come back to the TD Garden as a player. But I'm not sure if he had played, that could have been any more special. Yeah, I I would agree with you. That was that was great, and I I agree with you on the the not playing. What was the point? You see him going running up and down the floor a couple of times. I mean, maybe maybe they could have checked him in just to have one more announcement that you know entering the game, KG, you know, get that Eddie Palladino big you know booming introduction. But, you know, or you start him and then sit him down after five seconds. But that's, you know, you actually want to play the game. And beyond that, you want to teach your, your kids. You want to st- st- stick with the plan and, and not do anything out of the ordinary because you've got such a young roster. So, but whatever, that's fine. KG sitting there and the chance and everything, it worked. And the Geno time was amazing. And I agree with your your assessment too. Like that, that was like the steam. You letting letting the steam valve and releasing the pressure when uh, when Gino came on. I can't. I've never seen a person smile like he smiles <laughs> when that thing comes on. It's the pure, unbridled joy, like a kid getting his gift that he wanted. All year on Christmas, joy. You have know? you ever seen? Have you ever seen the YouTube where I, th- I think a kid gets like a Nintendo sixty four yes. and goes absolutely yeah, wild? Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Like that is KG when Gino comes out. Yeah, <laughs> that that Nintendo sixty four moment. Uh, That's amazing. It's, it's 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 amazing because adults don't get that happy. Adults do not have that much joy. But look like, at only kids what he's get to that happy level. About look at what he's—he's he's just watching these guys from seventies American Bandstand dancing, <laughs> and he just loves it. He loves all the different crazy dance moves. One guy's like flapping his arms like he's got wings, and he just every time a new person comes on, 
it's like he and he'd seen it countless times over the course of his career in Boston. That team was so good. There were a lot of blowouts. And it, every time you looked at the video, it's like he had never seen it before. He was experiencing it for the first time all over again, every time. <laughs> and, and then whenever they got new teammates, so when, when Rashid Wallace came in, he'd say, oh, you got to see this. And when Shaq came on, he's like, oh, Shaq, you got to see this. Like, he was like, like, it was the most amazing thing to him. I loved it. I could, I could just sit there and watch KG on a loop for hours watching Geno time. If somebody on the internet has the wherewithal to find all of the KG reactions to Geno time and put it on a, on a YouTube video, please do, because that would be absolutely phenomenal to watch. I would go, I would, I would cue that up whenever I was in like a bad mood. Yeah. I, I'd be, I would ser- go to Google search for the KG Just put Gino a bookmark. video <laughs> <laughs> and I, I can get a bookmark too, I guess. I, I guess, I guess that's the thing that happens. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would just watch that and I'd be, I'd be happy that over and over. There is nothing better than KG's reaction to Gino. It, it is so pure and, and it, the, the magic was never lost on him. And the KG magic was not lost on Boston. That was, that was a really special way I thought to maybe say goodbye. Yeah. All right. Well, let's hope the Celtics can get some magic in the uh, upcoming days and recapture some of their past glory. Let's hope that they can get themselves together and let's hope when we return next week on the rain and Jays podcast, that we have some positive things to talk about. So we will see you all next week. Hi, you've reached the high fashion hotline. Hi, my family's going to a tailgate and I want our style to stand out from the crowd. Just go to Old Navy. Old Navy? Yep, Old Navy's got all the latest fall styles. Plus, during Old Navy's colossal sale, you'll save up to 50% off store-wide. Did you say up to 50% off? I did, so don't sit on the sidelines. Old Navy has the perfect pants from 19 bucks, stylish dresses from 15 bucks, and comfy tees for the family from just 6 bucks. Right now at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. We're cheering for Old Navy. High fashion, Old Navy. Valid 10-2 to 10-10, select styles only. Rejecting the screen has been retweeted by Kobe, Dame Lillard, and Vince Carter. So it's fair to say you should give it a shot. I'm Noah Kozlov. And I'm Adam Stanko. Rejecting the screen hits your feed every Tuesday and Thursday. On Tuesday, we talk hoops and a little bit of life. On Thursday, we go ISO with a guest. Stories from anyone and everyone who has touched the NBA with tales we promise you've never heard before. Find Rejecting the Screen right now wherever you get podcasts and hit that subscribe button.